1: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? I bet you think, as I've thought for years, it means using the name of the Lord flippantly. Is that the best? Is that really the best uh, interpretation of Exodus 20, verse 7? Well, you are gonna be surprised today to learn that's probably not the best interpretation. In fact, my guest today studied that one verse for five years. Yes, yes, (laughs) five years. It's true. She, She is someone that wants to know what that verse means. Her name is Dr. Carmen Imes. She has her Ph.D. from Wheaton. She's been a missionary. She's taught at several colleges. Now she's at Biola. And she has a book called Bearing God's Image. And this is a fascinating book and also a fascinating subject. And it has... Implications for how we live today. So, Dr. Imes, thank you for joining us here in Denver. We're in Denver yes, right now.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's your hometown, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yes.
0: Born and raised.
1: We are here at the Evangelical Theological Society and Philosophical Society meeting. And we're meeting with scholars and apologists and theologians. And we want to bring you the best of the best. That's why Carmen is with us. Now, Carmen, how did you decide that you were going to investigate this topic? Hmm. First of all, what is the actual translation of Exodus 20 verse 7? This is one of the 10 commandments ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. What is the what is the proper translation?
0: I I would translate it you shall not bear the name of Yahweh your God in vain. You shall so, not
1: bear the name so of Yahweh. So bear
0: in the sense of carry Okay. Uh, And and we you know most English translations say something about taking the name in vain, not taking the name in vain, and then we say, well, what does it mean to take a name in vain? We have this long tradition of understanding that as as using God's name flippantly or as a swear word or something. Um, And after my investigation, I I'm quite certain that's not the right reading of the of the command.
1: How many different trans? I'm sorry. How many different interpretations did you find in your five year study? Twenty three. 23 now is the lord not clear or do we have a problem what is the deal with 23 interpretations
0: i i think that the hebrew is a little bit mystifying if you're just trying to read the command by itself if you don't take the context into consideration. And so translators have come to that verse and they've said, what does it mean to lift up or carry God's name? Like we don't carry names. So that must be an idiom for something else. It must be figurative. And so then they go looking for parallels in other places to try to figure out what, what would that then mean? And I think what's the, the problem is that we've connected with the wrong parallels. And if If we just read that verse in its natural literary context in Exodus, I think a different picture emerges.
1: Okay, before we dive into the details, how does this have implications for us today, Christians living today? Because the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, yes, that's repeated Mm -hmm. in the New Testament, but why is this such a big deal?
0: I think it's a really big deal. I would even argue that if Christians want to understand our identity and our vocation as followers of Jesus, we have to go back to Sinai. We have to see what's happening uh, with the Ten Commandments. Um, I I don't think these have been set aside in Christ. I think we actually need to— to to drill down. My maybe best way of illustrating that is in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter is writing to a mixed audience of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, and he calls them a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, God's treasured possession, depends on the translation. And those titles, he takes exactly from Exodus 19 which is the titles that God gives to Israel at Sinai. So if Peter is talking to a New Testament church made up of Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, you are God's treasured possession, then we should go back to Sinai where he first says, you're my treasured possession and say, well, what does it mean to be God's treasured possession? And, and so I'm convinced that, um, that we need Sinai in order to understand our vocation, our, our mission as the people of God.
1: Okay, we're gonna unpack that during the course of the show. But before we do, I'm curious as to know why you spent five years on one verse. How did this come about? <laughs> well, why, how did this become an interest for you?
0: I might have been cheating, but the way that I picked my dissertation topic um, in conversation with my potential mentor at Wheaton College, I knew that at Wheaton, you have to come in with a topic that your supervisor wants to work on. And Daniel Block is the man I wanted to work with. He was nearing retirement, so I just asked him what topics do you still want to supervise before you retire like what needs to be done i didn't feel like as a master's student i was in a position to know what needs to be done in the field of biblical studies um i I didn't feel like i had that vantage point and he did and he could have said carmen that's cheating figure out your own topic. Uh But he didn't. He actually wrote me, gave me a whole list of here are some topics that I think are worth pursuing. And on that list was this command. And he attached to his email a sermon that he had preached on this command. Um, and And I was just taken by it. I thought this is so illuminating and it's so much more powerful and relevant than I ever imagined this command would be. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of that topic. So here we are 10 years later, still talking about it and I'm not tired of it yet.
1: So why do you think the traditional interpretation or maybe the common interpretation mm-hmm. we have today, which is sort of you're using the name in a flippant way, mm-hmm. uh, why why did that take hold and why, mm-hmm. why is that wrong? Mm-hmm. I mean, we would agree we're not supposed to do that, right? We're not yeah. supposed to oh, flippantly right, right. use the name of the Lord. But that's not really the, it's the not purpose, the heart of, the yeah. heart of this passage. Yeah. So how did this come to be the, the main interpretation?
0: Frank, that is such a good question. And I and I don't have a definitive answer for how did we get off track. But I would say um, we, as human beings, we like specificity and certainty about, just tell me what exactly what I have to do so that I know that I'm not breaking the rules. Mm. And I think this command is so broad um, that there was this tendency to be like, "Well, just give me a checklist. I just want to know exactly."
1: Oh. And
0: and so that that human tendency to want to self justify. Well, I haven't done I haven't done X, Y, and Z, so I must be okay. Mm. I, I think that's part of it.
1: So you decided to really dig deep into this, twenty three interpretations. Um, Is that our issue or God's issue or a combination? (laughs) I mean, how do we come up with 23 different interpretations of one verse?
0: Mm, I think we we uh, we only when we come to the scriptures, we're trying to understand it as best we can. Mm -hmm. But we're all coming from our own social location, our own life experiences. Mm -hmm. And we like it or not, we bring that with us to the text. And so there are certain things that we think would be obvious or we think uh, that, or that don't occur to us uh-huh. because we just don't have that cultural background, and so you know, well, we don't carry names, so it must mean something else. Okay, uh, and so we're we're casting about for another explanation, but I think in the context of this passage, it's very clear what it means to carry a name, and so if we just look at that context, that can help us see what what it, what are we actually being asked
1: not to do. You know, I I first. Got a wind of this from Dennis Prager. Oh yeah, uh, you know who Dennis is, yeah. and uh, Dennis has written a couple of books. I think one is called The Rational Bible, mm-hmm. and his interpretation of this passage is similar to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That what we're not supposed to do is basically do evil in the name of the Lord.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that would be taking the Lord's name in vain or bearing yeah. God's name in a in an evil way. Yeah. Like, like that, you,
0: it, that's very similar to my reading that he, uh-huh. like that we would use God's name to authorize something like we mm. claim we claim divine um, blessing or divine authority for what we're doing. And what we're doing is actually really problematic.
1: So Dennis is on to something. Here. I
0: think he's on to something. I think I would. I think my reading is a little broader yet than that.
1: OK. All right. Well, how, how, how much broader is it? What's the.
0: So so I understand this command as a as a warning not to misrepresent Yahweh at all. Okay. And so it's not just what we, how we use God's name to authorize what we do, but it's the fact that we claim to be the people who belong to Yahweh, then we have to live in such a way that, that, um, that that's on display in our lives, that people can look at us and see what Yahweh is like, see His character on
1: display. All right, we're going to unpack that further right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Dr. Carmen Imes, uh, and we are diving into Exodus 20, verse 7. You say, that's really narrow. It's got a lot of implications for today, friends. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. You will never hear this on NPR. We're here to tell you the truth. That's our intent anyway. Website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, org. My guest is Dr. Carmen Imes. Her book is Bearing God's Name and actually... I said, Bearing God's Image in the first segment, that's because I'm confusing it with her second book, which comes out in June. For those of you watching on video, I have an advanced copy. It's called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. That's coming later, but you can look up Dr. Imes. Dr. Imes, what is your website so people know Um, where to find you?
0: I have, uh, yeah, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. I have a blog there. I have a YouTube channel. If you just look for Carmen Imes, it should pop right up.
1: Good. Ims is I-M-E-S. That's right. Now, before, uh, in the first segment, we were talking about the, really the key to understanding Exodus 27, do Don't or bearing God's name mm-hmm. properly, don't take God's name in vain, mm-hmm. is really the context. So mm-hmm. what is the context of the passage?
0: Yeah, so it, if you can imagine where the Ten Commandments are, it's right as the people are just arriving at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And they're at Sinai for a good long time. Um maybe only about a year in narrative time, but all the way through Leviticus and Numbers and first ten chapters of Numbers, they're at Sinai. And right here in the close context, um, in Exodus 28, Moses is up on the mountain. God is giving him the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, and he gives these very detailed instructions on clothing that the high priest is supposed to wear. Mm-hmm. And part of those instructions include um, there's a chest like a pouch on the high priest's chest that has 12 gemstones on it. And each of the gemstones is engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes. And it's, it's to signify that Aaron, the high priest represents them when he comes into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, he's, he's representing all 12 tribes.
1: Okay.
0: And Exodus 28 describes that using the exact same phrase that we have in the name command. So it says, and so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on his breastpiece. And that I think is key because Aaron is representing the tribes and he also has on his forehead a gold medallion that reads holy belonging to Yahweh. So he actually literally is carrying God's name on his forehead. And I think that this is important because we've already seen in chapter 19 that God calls them a kingdom of priests. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. So I don't think it's a stretch for us to look at the high priest as a visual model of what's true of the entire Israelite nation. He's, he's a, the high priest. They're a kingdom of priests. So we watch him to find out more about their vocation. So he's representing Yahweh to the people and he's representing the people to Yahweh. And so he bears these names on his body. And so in with that very close context for the name command um, when god says to the people you shall not bear the name of yahweh in vain i think what he's in implying is that they too have been branded or stamped with the name of yahweh they have an invisible tattoo if you will and that indicates they belong to god and therefore they are his representatives among the nations. And and God says that in so many different ways throughout the time at Sinai. Um, you know, all the earth is mine, all the nations belong to me, but you will be my treasured possession. God selects Israel from among the nations to represent him to everybody else. And so to bear his name in vain would be to, to accept that role as his representatives and then to misrepresent him. Mm. So to bear God's name in vain is to do anything that would cause others to look and say, huh, if that's what Yahweh is like, I want nothing to do
1: with it. And how often does that happen in our culture today when Christians aren't bearing the name properly?
0: I mean, all you have to do is pull up any news site Mm -hmm. and you don't have to dig very far to find a scandal of a Christian leader who's been caught doing something that's contrary to what they preached. And yeah, I think that this is a prime example of bearing God's name in vain.
1: Yeah, of course. The only thing the media will cover are scandals. Yes. So they're not going to cover the ninety-five percent of the time when Christians are out there digging wells and yes. feeding the poor yes. and taking care of orphans and, and loving their and, neighbor in all yeah, sorts of ways. Yeah, you're yeah. never going to see that on the news. So right. we need to keep that in perspective. Totally. But we are also—it's also important to note that when we don't bear God's name properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're bringing shame on his name and we obviously don't want to do that. Now, how does this compare? to bearing god's image which is the subject Mm. of your next book carmen i mean it's one thing to bear his name but we all bear his image whether or not we're christians correct
0: yes um and that was the question i was asked more than any Uh other right after the book came out everybody said oh if if bearing god's name is kind of a representative role isn't that similar to being god's image and and i and i my response was yes it's similar they're both representative roles but it's not the same because every human being is the image of god and only the covenant people bear God's name. So the name bearing is a smaller subset of humanity, um, but I think it's absolutely crucial that we recognize every human being as God's image. Um, there, there's, And I would argue there's no way that the image of God can be lost or destroyed or marred in any way. Like we, by being human, we are God's image. It, it was actually um, back in maybe 2009, my first ETS meeting, uh, where I heard John Kilner give a plenary address about the image of God. And he said, I used to talk about the image being lost or, or destroyed or marred in some way. And then I realized the Bible doesn't actually teach this. Um, there's a brokenness in our relationship with God. There's maybe relational strain, um, but you can't be any less the image of God than you are right now.
1: What does it mean? Because I know that mm. theologians debate what the image of God means. What's yeah. your best assessment of what it means?
0: My take on it is that it's not a capacity that we possess, but it's who we are. It's our human identity. So in in the ancient Near East, if uh, if somebody built a temple to a God, a deity, they would put an image of that God in the holy place. And that was an, an a statue that people would then uh, bring worship to. And it's that same word that's used to describe humanity as being God's image. We are the selim, which is what you would set up a physical thing you would set up in a temple. So God creates the world as His cosmic temple, and then He says, "I don't, I don't want you to make images of Me because you are." My image. Um, some of you will hear in my voice uh, Tim Mackey's voice from the mm-hmm, Bible Project. Mm-hmm. He uh, in the Image of God video. He uses those words. He says, "You know, I, I don't want you to make any images of me because you are the image of God." But
1: technically, God is not a physical being. So, right. what does it mean? It doesn't mean a physical image.
0: So we're His physical representations because He's not physical. Right. Like we're the reminder to the planet, to the to all creation. Of god's rule so we're representatives in a similar way to bearing god's name we're representatives of god's rule and so that has implications for our function or our vocation but i think it's important that we recognize we are the image the image is not something we do because um, we all fall across a range a spectrum of ability and disability Mm -hmm. if if I got hit by a car this afternoon and was in a coma. I don't lose my status or identity as the image of God, even though I'm not doing anything Mm -hmm. in a coma. So I think that's super important for ethics. Um, I think the treatment of every human being with, with dignity derives from this, uh, this teaching in scripture that every human being is the image of God.
1: So to dig a little deeper then humanness, is not necessarily a capacity, but it doesn't right. tail certain capacities. I mean, it we have usually the ability to reason, right? Usually,
0: yes. but if someone was unreasonable, they right. wouldn't be less the image of God. That's that's what I feel like it's well, important for us to say. My kids always claim
1: I'm unreasonable.
0: So. <laughs> you can just say, well, I'm still the image of God. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. So, how would this differ from, say, any other animal? Um, mm. They're not made in the image of God. In what right. way are they not made in the image of God?
0: well and that's where i think when we when we tie the image to capacity uh-huh. we run into trouble because animals are quite intelligent right. and they are even relational uh-huh. and they there, there are all sorts of things we're learning about the animal world that are like increasingly impressive and then that gap between animals and people seems to narrow um like what what sets us apart what sets us apart is that god makes us to be his part of his family. There's right. a kind of kinship that is part of being the image of God. And I get this from Genesis 5, where it talks about um, um, Adam having a son in his own likeness, in his image, Seth, and it connects that back to humans being in God's image. So we are the image of God like Seth is the image of Adam. Seth is not Adam, and we are not God, but, but we're family. And so we have this intrinsic relationship that even if even if we turn our back on God, there's no way to erase that family connection.
1: Now, going back to the bearing God's name, Mm -hmm. um, you and I have a mutual friend in Dr. Michael Heiser. By the way, those who are watching or listening, pray for Dr. Heiser still dealing with the pancreatic cancer, Mm -hmm. and we pray that his current treatment is going to help him uh, recover completely. Uh, He has pointed out, well, I'm sure others have, but he really helped me understand this, that uh, in the Tower of Babel, when God disinherits the nations in Mm -hmm. Genesis 11, Genesis 12 is God saying, now I'm going to re-inherit the nations beginning with Abraham. Mm -hmm. So how does this work into the uh, bearing God's name we are today re-inheriting the nations. It's interesting Mm -hmm. that Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all nations and not, not, he doesn't say people, he says nations. So Mm -hmm. how does, how does bearing God's name relate to re-inheriting the nations? Yeah,
0: it's a a great question. I would say that um, these two concepts of being God's image and bearing God's name connect in Genesis 12, as you mentioned, Genesis one through 11 is this downward spiral of humanity in rebellion against God again, I would say they haven't lost the image of God, but they're estranged from God and God Mm -hmm. wants to restore creation to himself. He wants to restore humanity to himself. And so he selects Abraham and his family to be the means through which or the channel through which his blessing can come to all nations. And so those of us who are um, now rightly related with God and who bear his name, our job is, our vocation is to invite others into that right relationship with God. So I, I talk about it in Bearing God's Name as a game of blob tag.
1: Blob um, tag. We,
0: we often <laughs> think of election, the, concept, the uh-huh. theological con- uh-huh. concept of election as, it, as being picked to be saved. Mm-hmm. Like God picked me, aren't I great? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not how I see the Bible presenting election. I see it more like, when God chooses you, it's like he says, tag, you're it. And now, so blob tag is the one where if I'm it and I tag you, then we're both it. And we're running around trying to tag as many other people as we can until everybody's been tagged. Uh Um, Now, I'm not a universalist. I don't think like inevitably all people will be tagged. But I do think that our vocation is not to sit back and say, okay, great. I've been picked. Now I can just coast from here till eternity. But it's more of like, I have a job to do. I've been tagged. That means I got to get up off my duff and I got to tag as many people as I can.
1: Well, we do. And we're going to do that. And we're going to do it in the next segment too. So don't go anywhere. We're here with Dr. Carmen Imes. Her book is Bearing God's Name. And she has a newer book coming out. We'll mention again in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest, Dr. Carmen Imes. We are talking about bearing God's name and also being God's image. But before we do that, I want to mention as we come up to Thanksgiving and into the Christmas holidays, we've had some donors step up to give us a $100,000 matching gift. That means any money you give up to 100,000 before the end of the year will be doubled. So what a great way to double your impact. As you know, we are completely donor supported. When we go to a college campus and do I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, we don't charge students a dime. And uh, the podcast, the TV show, everything we do online is funded by you. We don't talk about this very much. In fact, I probably haven't mentioned donations uh, since last the end of last year, but as you come up to your, uh, end-of-year giving, if you would consider crossexamine.org, you will double your impact up to $100,000. And I want to point out that all of the donations go 100% toward ministry, 0% toward buildings. We are completely virtual. You don't come to us, we come to you. All right, let me go back to Dr. Imes. Carl. I mean, Carmen, you uh, um, have written this book, uh, Bearing uh, God's Name. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there are a bunch of other interpretations. Mm-hmm. What, is, what are some of the other interpretations uh, that maybe aren't the one we typically think of using the name of the Lord in a, mm-hmm. in a blasphemous or a, a flippant way that, that may have some truck to them, that may have, mm. that could possibly be true, but you don't think they quite meet the mark?
0: There, I, I noticed as I was looking through the history of interpretation mm-hmm. that there are people who have this impulse. They would start off and say, well, this command is telling us not to make false oaths. okay. But it can be extrapolated more broadly to like anything we do that misrepresents mm-hmm. God. You know, they, they would start narrow and then they would have this sort of impulse like, But I think it's broader than that. And I would say their impulse was correct. It's broader. But the exegetical basis of that um, was just lacking. And so I think Martin Luther is one who does that, who says, well, it means this, but it's broader. Um, We can apply it more broadly. So I think there there has been for a long time a sense that, wow, this is a really narrow, if, if we take it as not saying God's name disrespectfully, that's a very small uh, a thing to focus on at the top of a list of of the God's top ten, right? So it's mm-hmm. right near the top of the list, and you would expect something weightier right. towards the top of the list. And and also, others have noticed. Well, there's an also a command telling us not to bear false witness, and if if the name command is about uh, not taking false oaths or not misrepresenting God um, verbally, then how is that different than false witness? That seems like two commands in a list of God's top 10 that are mostly the same. Hmm. So I think there's been, a for a long time, people like, well, this this must be broader or this must have have more weight but they haven't quite known how to get there now I wasn't the first person to suggest this this Uh there there's a long history of minority voices who have thought that this was about representation not about speech
1: how about ancient Jewish interpretations how did they take it did they get close to what you're saying here
0: there are some um, And and now you're asking me to like reach back several years in my research Uh to like resurrect some things that are not as sharp in my mind anymore. But um, some of the Targums, which are the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, um, some of them are expansive. Some saying explicitly this is about oath taking, but others seem to use language that fits this context a little bit better. This this reading of uh, not misrepresenting God. Maybe my best examples came from the early church fathers. Mm-hmm. So just immediately after the New Testament, some of the people who are writing Clement and Barnabas, and, yeah. um, they talk about signing on to the Christian faith, like being baptized as taking on God's name. All right. and, and so they have this sense that you shouldn't be baptized and then go out and take God's name in vain. Mm-hmm. like. Like bear God's name in vain, so they saw it more holistically as a as representation.
1: So, uh, Dr. Heiser's always said that we have to transport ourselves back yes. to the time uh, when the text was written and yeah. try and understand it as they would understand it. Yeah. So, how would the Israelites who have just mm. left Egypt understand this command? Mm. Would they understand it in the thin way, which is, well, I just can't use his name disrespectfully. <laughs> or, I don't think
0: any ancient Near Eastern right. person was that dumb, honestly, uh-huh. to, to just go around throwing around the names of deities. They like, they had this sense that a god's name had great power, and then it needed to be stewarded carefully. Yeah, well, that, that's and an so, interesting
1: point because they already wouldn't say his name, right? I mean, they would so they that, wouldn't even pronounce it. They would they would take when they when they wrote it in a text, they would wash their hands. They didn't want to say the name. So why would you even need the command if it just meant don't say the name? And they wouldn't say the name anyway, right?
0: Yeah. So the the practice of not saying God's name Uh actually developed later in Israel's history. I'm convinced that God invites his people to say his name. When God Uh reveals himself to Moses at Sinai in chapter three and four, he says, my name is Yahweh. And that's what that's what I want to be remembered by. Uh-huh. Um, and there's no sense like, but don't say it. You
1: know, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like here's my name, from, but then? don't say it. Where did that
0: come from? Um, I That's still a bit of a mystery to me. Some people suggest that it's because of this command that they were trying to be super careful. Well, we're not exactly sure what it is we're not supposed to do. So let's just not ever say it. And then we'll be sure not to break it, to okay. break that command. Some have suggested that. Others have said, no, that's not... Um, we can't directly trace the non-pronunciation of God's name to that command. Um, there, there were other considerations about just a deep reverence of just really wanting to treasure the name of God and not, not sully it in any way.
1: Okay, so if you were talking to Christians and you are right now, mm-hmm. how does this one of the Ten Commandments, which is repeated in the New Testament, so it does have some, uh, we are, we are, this command is for us, even though. It comes from the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in the New Testament. So it is a command for us because it is repeated in the New Testament. So what do you say to Christians watching or listening right now how they ought to conduct themselves with this command in mind?
0: Mm. I tell my students that it's kind of like being on a sports team. Um, If our Biola basketball team plays an away game, and let's say they just, they're just they just playing really scrappy on the court, they're pushing people around, they keep fouling, they're trash-talking the ref, and then afterwards you gotta like hold them back because they're about ready to go pummel the other team. Because they're wearing Biola jerseys, mm-hmm. everybody who's watching then has a, a poor impression of Biola University. Um, now, thankfully, this is a fictional illustration. <laughs> I'm not, this is not from, uh-huh. from uh, personal experience watching this, um, but I think This is how it is when we sign on to follow Jesus. We are wearing jerseys. Uh, We're Mm. part of Team Jesus. Mm -hmm. And therefore the world is watching us to find out, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Sometimes Christians think of their faith as something that's entirely personal. It's it's a set of beliefs that I hold. It's none of your business. It's between me and God, and it's about where I'm going when I die. And I really think that if we take this command seriously, it helps us to see that our lives are on display for a watching world. that this is not about just me and jesus that i have a responsibility to be god's ambassador i'm mm, representing mm, him mm. so therefore everything we do the way we drive the way we talk to the the person who's cleaning the public restroom as we come through the way we um the, the way we handle our money the way we handle our time all of these things are indications of our allegiance to to god um as michael heiser would say believing loyalty um we, it's not just a list of doctrines that we assent to, it's actually a a loyal way of life. Like we're, we're demonstrating by our life that we actually belong to Jesus.
1: It's been said before, ladies and gentlemen, that God gives us the dignity of causality. In other words, we're not just here as people who have fire insurance waiting mm-hmm. for our mm-hmm. bodies to break down. Right. God gives us the dignity of affecting not only time for eternity as ambassadors for him. Mm-hmm. Now he didn't need to do it this way, Carmen. No. He could have just revealed directly to everybody who he what well he does he through did. natural <laughs> revelation. We get that the witness of the Holy Spirit. But I mean, yeah. he doesn't need us to preach the gospel. He could do it directly himself but he's chosen mm-hmm. to use us to bear his mm-hmm. name to the world so we could actually get in on affecting time and eternity yeah. correct
0: Yeah we're never off duty like right, this is right. this is our calling
1: Right yeah. So uh, tell a little bit, we just got a few minutes left, tell a little a bit more about uh, what you're doing. You have a YouTube channel, you do a weekly uh, Torah Tuesday, something like that. What's that all about?
0: Yeah, so during the pandemic, the pandemic hit right after Mm -hmm. my book came out, right after Bearing God's Name came out, like three months later. And so all the speaking engagements were canceled. Mm -hmm. I had a bunch of trips planned and they were all canceled. And so I had time on my hands and I was beginning work on a commentary on the book of Exodus and was really excited about what i was discovering like just really great stuff that i wanted to share with people and i didn't want to wait five years for the commentary to come out and so i thought what if i just did kind of really homespun videos at my desk and posted them on youtube just like hey here's what i learned this week and so i started producing videos during the pandemic and we're now i did a full year of videos and then took a year off while we transitioned to southern california and got set up and relaunched last june so now there's a video coming out every week and it's just a tidbit on what I'm learning in Exodus. Uh, it's been a really fun way to connect with people around and the world. And the
1: YouTube channel is
0: um, it's it's just my name, Carmen Joy Imes. Okay, so, yeah.
1: Look it up, for, look it up, folks. You'll get yeah. a video, a short video. It's like once they're a, like
0: five to eight minutes. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. And um, you've got a new book coming out in June called "Being yep. God's Image." What's the essence of that?
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the. Um, the dignity of what it means to be God's image right. and how that impacts us in every area of life. I'm, th- I'm thinking more broadly about what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. and considering you know all the different, I, I touch on a lot of hot button issues in the book, mm-hmm. gender, uh, gender relationships, race, uh, disability, um, creation care, eschatology, because all of these things are impacted by how we understand what it means to be the image of God.
1: Well, you're doing great work, and it's intriguing work, actually, Thank you. because I've always thought about that command and said, yeah, it does seem a little thin. Is that, yeah. is that what that whole thing yeah. is about? Yeah. There's a lot more to it. Why does God
0: it. care so much yeah. about what what we say? Is he that fragile?
1: Right. It's, yeah, it's no. less about what you say, although what you say is important, and it's more about mm-hmm. how you live. Yeah. And that's, that appears to be what that command is really about. Yeah, yeah, So what do you teach at Biola, by the way? I
0: teach Old Testament. All right. uh, so I do, do a huge Old Testament history mm-hmm. and literature class um, okay. that's required. And then I have an elective on the Psalms, teach biblical theology. All right. Yeah.
1: All right, excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the program.
0: Yeah, thanks and, for having uh, me.
1: Folks, check it out, Bearing God's Name. And then also the new one, which I know is about six months away, is called Being God's Image. That'll be coming out. As well by Carmen Joy Imes, I-M-E-S. And also, if you would check out her YouTube channel, you'll get one short video a week at least. And there's some so many of them up there already, so you can avail yourselves of that. For a while. That's right, you can that's right.
0: Binge Torah. <laughs> that's right, you
1: can binge the Torah, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and I'm back. We'll get to some of your questions right after the break, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Me, Frank Turk. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. We're actually coming to you from Denver, Colorado, for the, from the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. It's basically a bunch of nerds. We're all here just nerding out, trying to learn from one another about Christianity, about philosophy, about apologetics. About some of the issues we just spoke to Dr. Carmen Imes about, and I'm joined for this final segment by our creative director here at crossexamine.org, Miss Phoenix Hayes. Phoenix, how are you?
2: I'm fantastic.
1: Now, Phoenix, you and I are researching some information or researching a a topic uh, for a new book. It's really about identity. We have an identity crisis in our country right now, maybe actually around the world. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to research that and uh, write a book about it. It's interesting that Carmen uh, is talking about us bearing God's name. That's what the uh, commandment says, that we ought not bear God's name and image. But who in our culture is telling us what our identity is if not god who's telling us who our identity who we are what our identity is now
2: it's a it's a funny um almost trick that is that i would say the elite the academic elite those in power those now in political with positions of political power are playing on us they're pushing the idea that we look internally to find our identity Mm -hmm. and yet so most people will tell you i look within me Mm -hmm. and in fact that's how i initially approached this project Mm -hmm. but the more you dissect it the more you realize it's only an illusion that people are looking internally the very idea to look internally is coming from these people in positions of power and influence our teachers our university professors those with, that have the greater voice in the media, and of course that then influences our politics. So the elite and those that have the, the biggest microphone are telling us where to draw our identities from and um, which identities are valid and mm-hmm. which aren't.
1: And uh, so we're supposed to look inside of ourselves. We're supposed to follow our heart mm-hmm. despite the fact that God says don't follow your heart, guard your heart, because Mm -hmm. everything you do flows from it. So they're trying to suggest that if I look inside myself and I say that my identity, even though I'm biologically a man, I can be a woman or some other in between, that's what they're telling us. Right. So why should we take what they say as gospel, do you think?
2: I would for generations, we haven't mm-hmm. we because reality defies that conclusion. Mm-hmm. But uh, the there is always going to be an appeal, uh, an appealing idea about being the ultimate authority mm-hmm. on anything, mm-hmm. about who you are, about what you do with your life. Mm-hmm. So that message uh, gets absolutely eaten up by society today, and I'm sure it has. It's done its cycle throughout, you know, civilization, and each time it ends up. Uh, collapsing because it can't sustain itself but the most dangerous thing I see with this idea is if you can choose your identity uh, your gender for example and separate it from your biology it it completely removes uh, the idea of personhood mm. from an an, an an encapsulated idea uh, which leads to massive moral, and philosophical problems when you um, extrapolate that idea? For example, what would you say to someone who holds this idea that identity and personhood is separated from biology and now they're pregnant and deciding what to do with this this thing that is?
1: Yeah, they might say, well, it's uh, a human being, but it's not a person. That's one of the uh, ploys or arguments, if you will, that the pro-abortion side have said. they try to say, well, it's just, uh, yeah, sure, you could find human DNA in there, but it's not a person. Well, this is an artificial distinction. Who's to say who a person is and who isn't? Why is that even an issue? Uh, we know from science that genetically it's a human being, so why would you ever say that it shouldn't be protected as a human being? Right. You don't even need the Bible to know this. Uh, you know that an unborn child is a human being from the moment of conception scientifically. So there's no reason to, to have some elite come in and put this artificial uh, measurement on to say, oh yeah, okay, we agree it's a human being, but it's not a person. What does that mean? <laughs> so what? That's so what right. If, if you wanna say it's not a person, whatever that means, that is irrelevant to the fact that it is a human being and what dr im's point was is that if christianity is true and if god exists then we are made in god's image if god doesn't exist well there's no right to anything anyway right there's no right to abortion or no right to life exactly so here's the problem with with elites they're telling us who we are when in fact, they're just human beings like the rest of us, and they have no standard beyond themselves by which to say that we have certain rights or don't have certain rights, or we ought to live a certain way or not live a certain way. Unless there's a standard beyond us, a transcendent standard, a standard that we're obligated to obey because that standard created us, that's God's nature, and his, his nature is good. Unless he exists, then there's no right to anything. There's not only no right to abortion, there's no right to life. So elites telling us what we are, in my view anyway, is just, they have no ground behind them. They have no authority behind them. They have no way, no external standard by which we ought to say, well, you're right. There's gotta be a standard beyond us that we're obligated to obey, otherwise there's no right to anything. Right. And, and the same thing is true in the gender world. Right. I mean, you have now people saying, well, the, you know, what, whatever my gender is, that it, it's just whatever's on my heart. And we've said this before, Phoenix, as you know, you, you handle all of our social media. We have so many, uh, people looking at our videos related to transgenderism but transgenderism presupposes fixed genders in fact why why does it presuppose fixed genders
2: well simply because you can't trans you transition into you know from a to b without there being a distinction between a and b mm-hmm. this is precisely why this entire ideology uh is so so circular uh you ask someone um Okay, gender is a spectrum, Mm -hmm. right? What's at the end of each of those spectrums? That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And sure, certain people, as you move closer toward the middle, you'll have men that exhibit more culturally feminine uh, characteristics or whatever, but they're still men. And simply because these people that uh, float in the center of the spectrum exist, and that's fine, um, people... Like to ignore the fact that there is a there are two ends to that spectrum that creates it
1: in the first place. Right, right. You you wouldn't if if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is. Precisely to know that there's a a problem here, and if I want to make the so-called transition, which biologically is impossible, mm-hmm. but people try and do it anyway. I have to have some idea what a man is and some some idea what a woman is in order to do that. Right. And think about it this way, friends too there's only in the mammalian world two things you can do you either can produce an egg or you can produce a sperm there's no third thing you can produce in between Mm -hmm. those are the two genders Mm -hmm. the two sexes you're either going to produce a sperm or you're going to produce an egg and if you can't produce either, okay, fine. That would be against the norm. That would be the exception rather than the rule. Correct. But there's nobody out there producing something in between. Correct. Yeah. So there are no genders in between a man and a woman. Right. Uh, we may, as you just said, Phoenix, we may exhibit certain cultural qualities or qualities culturally that we would say are masculine or qualities that we would say are feminine, even though we are not uh if I'm a man and I'm exhibiting certain feminine qualities, that wouldn't mean I'm a woman. It would just be, a, I'm still a biological man. I'm still, uh, my gender is still male, even though I might exhibit these qualities. But again, you wouldn't even know any of this unless those two genders existed. So as you're reading and you're trying to research for this book and identity, what are some of the uh, most intriguing ideas you've, you're you coming across right now? What are you What are you reading right now that's intriguing you?
2: Well, of course, this, this comes up again and again, the, the biologists and scientists of the world think that the fact that intersex people exist is their trump card in this argument. And yet, it does absolutely nothing to mm-hmm. support their position. Mm-hmm. In fact, it it almost exasperates their position because they're leaning on a biological fact mm-hmm. to prove um, a philosophical idea. Uh, so the, the fact that, yes, there are, you know, and of course they um, expand the numbers beyond what is actually factual. Mm-hmm. But even if we go with the current numbers that say one out of every 450 people are born intersex, mm-hmm. and that doesn't even mean a- anatomically speaking, it could be a chromosomal mm-hmm. issue, most of whom are completely unaware of mm-hmm. because they represent, they look male or female. Um, the fact that this category exists does nothing to support the idea that therefore you can choose gender
1: right right and that would be in the old way of saying it a birth defect anyway right it'd be against the norm but it wouldn't prove that there's this spectrum of genders between a man and a woman not at all and, yeah. and, and and those that, that do have that very rare condition, sounds like one in 450 is a bit high, but yeah, yeah. Um, even if that were true, it would be the exception rather than the rule. Those that do experience that, as I understand it anyway, at some point in their lives, if they have ambiguous genitalia, they have the surgery to try and correct the problem. Uh, but that's not what we're seeing in our culture today. As you know, what we're seeing in our culture today is we're seeing people with perfectly functioning Um, healthy sex organs, having them either removed or in some way mutilated in order to try and, which is impossible, transition to the other biological sex. Right. It doesn't happen. So there are so many implications here. So thanks for joining me on this, Phoenix. (laughs) We're going to, you know, once this book comes out, which probably will be in a couple of years, we're just starting the process. Mm -hmm. We'll Uh talk more about this uh, in detail, but we just wanted to uh, sort of add this to the discussion we had with Dr. Imes, because where we come from and who created us, that is our standard. It is not what we might think about on our hearts. God has made us men and women, he's made us in his image, and we as Christians then bear his name, and we have to do that rightly. If we're gonna love other people, we have to bear his name properly, we have to tell other people the truth, so we don't enable them to go down a path which is going to be destructive in their lives. That's why we're talking about this topic here. All right, friends, great being with you. Don't forget about the $100,000 matching gift. Any money you give at the end of the year to cross-examine will be matched up to $100,000. Thank you for helping us do what we do. You're reaching people through us. God bless. See you next week.